welcome to the Swamp Flicks Podcast. My name is Brandon Lede. I'm Brittany Lombas. And I'm James Cohn. And we are recording in New Orleans, Louisiana in three separate locations. Safely distanced despite the uh, open call the mayor just put out that people are invited to come over for Mardi Gras as long as they behave. Oh, good God. We're not even interacting. The people who live here are already keeping distance. What a nightmare. It's a celebratory time, though, <laughs> even though it's Mardi Gras and we're not allowed to hang out. We are putting together still our favorite movies of 2020. That autopsy is continuing on. Today, I will say I finally got everyone's lists in the day we're recording this. And I can at least announce that Deerskin will be our movie of the year, which I feel like is worth oh, celebrating. Oh, thank God. Yes. And a bunch of other good stuff that we talked about last episode when we went on and on. I'm so excited about Deerskin because it's going to be added to that like wall of fame that we have going on via like Letterboxd. <laughs> yeah, I kind of want to pull that up now. Uh, last episode, we talked about Snowpiercer, Me and Boomer, which was the first movie that you, me and James all picked out together when we mm-hmm. first started the website, like the very first yeah. week. And then we had It Follows, The Witch, Get Out, Annihilation, Midsummer, and now Deerskin. Which is a lot goofier than most of those movies, except maybe Snowpiercer. Uh, so I like that we got something very silly in there because you know these can get a little serious, even though we're always picking out over-the-top genre movies. Mm-hmm. I'm kind of digging how Deerskin was so high on everyone's list that you know, like a lot of times our top movies, like they're kind of scattered as far as it goes with everybody's top, and it's just it just so happens to be like that collective film that we all enjoyed. But I feel like Deerskin was high on at least what I've seen so far, like everyone's list. Yeah, I think, you know, everyone kind of has their own lane, but Deerskin has a lot of overlap with everyone's lane, which I feel like is why it was so easy for it to come to number one. And like you said last episode, James, it's an easy recommendation because it's like barely an hour long. It's like 70 minutes. So it's like, I don't, do don't want to bombard people with yeah. like serious movies that are over two hours long right now. Uh, I'd much rather recommend this like over the top genre movie that you can knock out uh, the same as like an episode of a HBO show. Yeah. Well, last time we all talked, we talked a lot about Deerskin and why we love it. Um, we also talked <laughs> about 24 other movies from last year, and apparently that was not quite enough. We wanted to do an honorable mentions episode today, and we each picked out movies from our lists that. We made each other watch, and we'll get a little deeper into those later. But do y'all want to throw any other recommendations out there from your best of the year list that we didn't quite cover yet? Yeah, I mean, um, I've got a couple. I think the first one I I want to mention, because a lot of the ones in the bottom part of my list, I think we maybe didn't touch on, but have talked about in previous episodes. Like on my top 20, I had David Byrne's American Utopia on there, which Brandon talked about a few episodes ago, the David Arquette documentary, which we've talked about. But a couple I wanted to mention that we, I don't think, have touched at all on in the podcast. Um, the first one is called Shit House, which is one of the most unfortunate <laughs> names for a very sweet little mumblecore romantic comedy. Very unfortunate name, very sweet movie about. A guy who's, you know, first year in college, doesn't have any friends. He starts trying to go to like the frat boy party scene. And he kind of has this like really wonderful night with his RA. And he thinks that they have this like great connection. And 
the first half of the movie is him basically spending the entire night together, just talking, get to know each other. And the whole movie is very sweet and honest about sort of that courting phase in like college where you just like meet a girl at a party and you hang out all night. And then the second half of the film, he basically thinks that this is going to develop into something deeper. And to her, it's just like, hey, you were fun to hang out with, but like I have a life to lead. And she sort of like is cold to him. And what I really, really liked about this movie was I have not seen a movie that really talked honestly about that aspect of the college experience in a, in such an honest way, like how these characters in this film felt very real. You have the guy who like hasn't really been with many chicks and he has this like one great night with this girl and he thinks, oh, this is a girl I'm going to fall in love with. And then the girl that's a little more experienced and just wants to like be free and hang out with lots of people. And of course it goes into, you know, they have some conflict and arguments uh, and then they come to understanding by the end of the picture. But I just thought it was a really, really nice film. It kind of reminded me of like eighth grade. Oh, wow. Well, a movie that in the sense that like is talking about a certain period of life in a very honest way. And for this one, like it brought back a lot of memories of college and just, you know, trying to connect with people at parties and the drinking and the awkwardness and the feeling that this connection has changed your life when really like you have tons of those connections in college. You just need to get outside of your, your box. And it's all from a, a movie called shit house. Like, yeah, that well, <laughs> that's the name of the blown away, you know, the party house that they hang out at okay. where it's like I was afraid that you were going to, it was going to be like another zombie ass that you had up your sleeve. No, it's just a really tender, you know, I felt like these characters are so relatable. The guy that leaves his sister and his mom, who he just, he loves his sister and his mom and he misses home and he has no friends and he talks to his stuffed animal at night. And he's sort of naive (laughs) about the whole college experience. And then the girl who is like very motivated, driven, and maybe a little bit distant, like it just felt like really real characters. And yeah, I I thought it, it was a pretty touching little movie. I know sometimes you gravitate towards those movies that feel like we could have made it with like our resources too. It sounds like kind of like contained. Is it like mostly just those two actors going back and forth? It's a lot of just those two, you know, he has these funny interactions with his stoner roommate. Who's like a total douchebag. And it's like, vomiting and shitting on himself every night because he's drinking too much and these little interactions at parties where like you can't hear what the other person's saying but you're just trying to like act cool i don't know a lot of it rang true to my college experience but yeah it is a very contained soft sort of movie but i don't know it it's definitely worth checking out shit house <laughs> <laughs> Do you have any others? Yeah. Well, there was one other one I wanted to talk about because I knew this one wasn't going to make it on anyone's list. It's a documentary called City Hall. I don't have the intellectual fortitude to watch this movie. I don't think I don't think I'm smart enough to sit down for that long. <laughs> oh, God, I'm already nervous to hear what this is about. <laughs> no, no. So here's the thing is like this. 
I forget the um, director's name, but this is like his style. He basically picks a subject and shoots a lot of footage and does not do any fancy camera cuts or editing. It's literally just, I'm going to like have a four or five hour movie just following this one character around. And compared to the other documentary that I picked that we're going to talk about later and some other ones like the David Arquette documentary we already touched on, this felt like such a stark contrast to those where it's basically following the mayor of Boston. And he's like this progressive candidate. And he really, you know, from what I can tell, genuinely wants change in the city. Like a lot of policies that probably we could all agree on. And what the film basically entails is like him and his cabinet and other government officials just sitting in meetings. A lot of meetings just talking about stuff, just trying to get stuff done, meeting after meeting after meeting, talking, talking. And I know it sounds extremely boring and it mm-hmm. <laughs> it's not necessarily like an intellectual thing. What I really took away from it uh, and why it made my list is I felt like this past year, I think everyone views government as like being totally dysfunctional. And I think some people on the political spectrum, see government is actually the enemy, evil. And I think what this showed in a really beautiful way is like government is people. And it's a lot of people that really want to try to get stuff done, but it takes so much work and a group effort and meeting after meeting after meeting to get incremental progress. To me, it was sort of reassuring that government does have a role in our lives. And a lot of the people in government are good people with good values. And it's just really fucking hard to get anything done. And I feel like if more people saw this movie, they would have a clear understanding of that. And again, it, it's not like a puff piece. Like it, a lot of it's very dry, but you really, there's something, it has this hypnotic effect where you see the mayor go from one event, you know, just the smallest thing, just planning a parade. Okay, he has a meeting with the police. He's got to have a meeting with um, the transit workers. He has to do a press conference. He has to do all these little things to just make this one like parade happen. And when you think of trying to do any huge change, whether it's healthcare, like it's so much work and it's so not rewarding on the day-to-day, you just have to keep grinding. So no, I don't think this documentary is really for casual viewing, but I did sit down and watch the full four-hour thing. And by the end, like I felt pretty positive about government, which is saying a lot in this period we're living in. That did bum me out a lot when Bernie lost the nomination this year and there were a lot of younger leftists who were like, I'm never voting again. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it was like, Especially on the local level, when it comes to like city elections, you can like affect a pretty strong change. Mm-hmm. It's a lot harder to picture, you know, if you're only going to vote for the president, maybe your vote is a little more insignificant just because of the way that everything's been chopped up and abstracted through the electoral college and everything. But you can affect change on like a city level, and it is those boring bureaucratic meetings, especially uh, like constituents and kind of like things. here in New Orleans. We have a like typically we have a lot of like really dedicated grassroots candidates, and yeah. 
I'm always kind of shocked by that where I'm like, in a city where everyone has that mentality, like, why aren't they getting these positions, you know? And I think that's it. It's just that people don't realize that and they don't care enough to kind of go out and vote for them. When I think, like Brandon was saying, I think like a mayor of a city or like a governor is like the highest level of elected official you can get where you really have to care about your constituents. I think once you become a senator and you go off to Washington, it's a lot easier to kind of forget the people from where you come Mm -hmm. from. But like, if you're the mayor of a city, you're held accountable. If you're screwing up, you'll hear it. And like people will write about in the paper and you are held accountable to your voters in a way that, you know, I don't think like a Mitch McConnell or someone like that is really held accountable. So yeah, local government, you know, you really can get stuff done, but my God, it's a lot of work. I like the idea of this movie in the abstract. The four and a half hour sit down sounds like a lot. But that that's part of it, though. I mean, that's part of the like effect. Yeah. It's just like, man, like I just had to sit down through four and a half hours. That's not even half of this guy's day. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah. And they, and they have like open to the public meetings where you can go voice your concerns to like city council members in our city right now. And that's what stops a lot of us from participating in that process, too, is like, oh, I got to go sit over there for three hours in this church (laughs) so I can raise my hand for 30 seconds at the end of the meeting. (laughs) I mean, I think something like this is trying to push people to just like be engaged or at least don't think of government as like this monolithic thing. Like it's a, a lot of it's grassroots people trying to do good. So I know a lot of people won't have a stomach for the four and a half hour runtime, but this feels like something that should be shown in like a civics class. Like I wish they would have shown this to me. Yeah. I mean, I just wish they would show this to kids so they could have a true understanding of what makes government work. Like I said, a lot of the documentaries that made our list this year felt pretty manipulative. You know what Mm -hmm. I mean? Like not necessarily in a bad way, but this is like the total antithesis of that. Yeah. That director I think is known for like fly on the wall documentaries Frederick Wiseman. Oh yeah, that's it. I think his like most famous one is from the '60s, and it's called like High School, uh, and it's just like an observation of like how high school works and what was going on in American high schools at the time. Whoa. Yeah, I think he's been doing yeah documentaries for like 40 years, and like this yeah. is his thing easily. So anyway, th- those are just the two I wanted to bring up. What about you guys? Any honorable mentions? I mean, I have a few that we didn't really like talk about. And I don't think that are on anyone else's list. So I'll throw two in there. Um, like you did, James, the rental was on my, uh, on my top list. One of my honorable mentions and it's like a, a horror movie, but it's kind of like Airbnb horror. <laughs> oh, is that the one directed by Dave Franco? Yeah. Dave Franco's a uh, directorial debut. And it's it's really good. Like I I kind of had it on my radar for a while, and I was watching it, waiting for it to go down from being like six bucks to rent, you know. And uh, it never did. <laughs> and I just said, "What the hell? Let me watch this." I'm in the mood for a thriller always. And I use Airbnb when I travel. Like, and a lot of the times I'm like, you know, just renting a room from someone in their apartment or something like that. And there's always like that weird feeling where you're like, do they have cameras rigged up in here? Are they like watching me pee? You know, you kind of like have that fear. And 
that is really played with in this movie. And I thought that was really fun because no one has really done anything like that before, at least that I'm aware of. I saw a pretty similar um, sci-fi horror movie called The Beach House this year. It's not very good, but it it opens kind of in the similar way. So I wonder if that's just on people's minds right now. Yeah. They just like go to this like sort of timeshare beach house and other people are already there. And there's just kind of this paranoia about like not being alone in this like shared, not quite hotel, like domestic space. Ew. I'm probably going to be into that. (laughs) So I'll watch it. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, so I mean, it's like, it's about, you know, two brothers and one's married one has a girlfriend and they all take drugs at this, you know, Airbnb rental where, you know, somebody's watching them and the brother that's married sleeps with the girlfriend from the other brother. So there's that like drama that I'm totally into in movies too, you know, a good scandal. And (laughs) they find like footage, like the person who's like watching them, like makes it known that they've has footage of that, sexual encounter and they're trying to like figure out like how they can find it and get rid of it while still trying to figure out like who the hell is watching them and how they can like get the hell out of the house and it's just a lot of fun and there's a lot of buildup and at the end like I don't want to give away the ending but it's not a satisfying ending which pisses me off a lot But I liked it. I liked this, like, you don't really get a clear-cut answer, but it's done in a way that, you know, Dave Franco is creating this, like, new kind of horror icon. I don't want to, like, compare it to, like, a Michael Myers or something, but you could tell there's this potential for, like, sequels and this being, like, a, you know, a well-known creep in the movie world. That that sounds very cool. I was also thinking of that movie Spree from last year that Brandon recommended mm-hmm. that I watch in regards to like, you know, it's like a movie about a evil Lyft driver or <laughs> evil Airbnb or like Yeah, like stuff that we use like not in our day to day, but things that we're all familiar with. Modern exploitation. Yeah. Ooh yeah. So yeah, the rental, it's uh kind of not on the radar with a lot of folks, and it should be because it's really good. Another one uh, that I want to talk about is the movie Bad Hair on Hulu. I really liked that. It is so good. It's a, a movie about a haunted weave. <laughs> it's a good satire of like hair in the black community and like all the judgment placed on it. And the main reason I love this movie so much is Vanessa Williams is in it. And she does such a good job at playing like a corporate bitch. Like that is like the role she was made for. She does it so well in this movie. And it it reminds me a lot of like how in fabric was. And deerskin. And deerskin. Oh my God, you're (laughs) you're right. Where it's goofy, but it's genuinely creepy. Like it's not just flat out stupid like there's still it's funny and it's it's silly and all that good stuff but like there's still this part of it that like really creeps you out and does a good job of i don't know scaring you that's what i appreciated too because i think if it was like a super goofy like almost like a sharknado type movie about a killer hair weave like it would have gotten really old really fast like you can maybe do that for about 15 minutes without testing someone's patience 
but like them sewing the weave onto her scalp and like cutting into her flesh. Oh my God. And some of the other imagery like that, it's genuine body horror. Absolutely. And then whenever like, you know, the, the weave gets sort of like out of control and starts to kind of wrap itself around the main character as she's like trying to escape from like this building and she like cuts parts of it off and just like blood spews all over. Like the weave yeah. is this like living being that bleeds and ugh. And it's made by the guy who did uh, Dear White People. So it has a lot of like pretty on the surface, but also just really well-observed political satire about race politics in American, mm-hmm. especially the American workplace. It's a lot about office culture uh, in particular and like how black people have to present themselves a certain way in that culture. And by a certain way, I mean up to white European beauty standards. Right. Long straight hair. Yeah, exactly. Which is how the, the weave came into play. Also like another movie that kind of talks about like that whole you know hair issue with like you know like like you were saying like you have to like have this presentable hair and it meets like you know white people's standards the only other film i could think of that did something like this is uh school days from spike lee there's even like a musical number where they're like we're talking about good and bad hair (laughs) whether you're dark or you're fair (laughs) Yeah, so I thought this was cool. It was like the horror version of School Days in a, in a way. <laughs> it's also set um, retro, like it's like late 80s, I think. So it's set kind of back in those mm-hmm. times when like it wasn't as much of a choice. Like I feel like now you could have natural hair or a weave and be fine. The choice is a little more up to you, but at the time it was like, if you want to get ahead, you have to get this weave. Right. So I, th- I think it was kind of smart that he set it back in those school days. Also, um, this is reminding me of that Chris Rock documentary from a while back called Good Hair. It's a lot of what it seems like this movie delves into as well. Yeah. It's really, really interesting. Um, so yeah, I would recommend that too if I guess you want to get more into the, the subject. Yeah, I mean I wanna see more I wanna see like a, a, a modern day bad hair because like even though like it is slightly easier to get away with natural hair as a black person now, it I mean, I'm, I can't help but think of, you know, the local issues with like, you know, kids being like kicked out of school. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, for having black hair. <laughs> yeah. A school setting one would be really interesting. A school setting one would be really interesting. And even in the workplace, like it's not like in the HR manual, but it will prevent you from moving up. Like right. you do get high judgment. There's like snarky remarks about it, even though it's like. Your company's like, we don't discriminate. Like, yeah, y'all do. You just don't put it out there on black and white. So I kind of think it'd be cool to do a modern day one. But yeah, yeah, Brandon, like you were saying, like a, a school one would be pretty dope. But yeah. So what about your honorable mentions? I kind of want to shout out three that are on a similar theme that I was thinking about this week, too, because I just watched this movie um, from 2021, believe it or not, called Locked Down with Anne Hathaway. Uh, that was like a covid themed oh, heist film is that on hbo max yeah and it's fine it's cute it's interesting though like i've been reading a lot of um negative reviews on it like tons of very strong negativity on this totally just okay movie <laughs> because people are sick and tired of seeing covid era films like films that use zoom or talk about how we only wear uh business clothes up top and pajama bottoms below because that's all that the camera sees people are just fiercely negative about the idea of watching media that's set during the time we're living through right now 
and I found myself looking at my like longer list of movies. Like, I don't think that's true to me. Like I, I find movies that reflect the current era we're living through to be worthwhile and worth discussing and worth dealing with. Mm-hmm. One of the things I saw about lockdown was that it is the first and most ambitious films produced during the pandemic. And that's total bullshit because this movie host that came out last year, that movie is so good. Oh, I watched that on your recommendation. Yeah. I dug it. It's uh, it's on my list, on my top 20. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's another one like Deerskin where it's like only 70 minutes or so. So it's a really easy recommendation. And it was, you know, written, filmed, produced, and released all within like a few months in the pandemic. Like they started after March of last year. And I want to say by the summer, it was already on Shutter. It is a group of 20-somethings holding a seance over a zoom call uh with a like uh, a spiritual medium who's like hosting the the seance for them and it's a lot like unfriended it's a lot of the same like found footage perspective of the laptop gimmick i'd say the major difference is these characters are really likable where the characters are unfriended or not at all but in host it is just really incredible the quality of the writing and the performances and the stunts they pulled off. Like there's some really great scares and special effects and just objects moving. And it's like, how did they film this where people couldn't be in a room together? You know, I'm always a sucker for the genre. I love technophobic found footage movies that are about like the evils of technology. I'm really into that. And one of the things I really like about it is how documentary it is about like what, our lives look like right now. Like we look at these screens all day. It's kind of weird that movies don't reflect that imagery more often. So I, I like that a movie in that genre tackled the very immediate right now of the horror we're living through, even though it had like a supernatural horror element too. Yeah. The, the two things that have stuck with me about that movie are, and you touched on these, but like usually the characters are disposable in these sort of films. Like, I think that the characters in here, like you said, are pretty likable. And and I also think that it's genuinely scary. Like the last 30 minutes of it, like there were a few jump scares where it really got me. So anytime a horror movie can like make me like these characters in a short amount of time and make me jump off my seat, that's a winning combo for me. It's the kind of like little time capsule I want from the COVID situation like my fear is that there's just going to be this huge burst of movies that are just going to constantly remind us over and over again about the pandemic and it's going to be like overplayed and it's going to piss me off but like i feel like if they all do like what host did (laughs) i'm okay with it you know i gravitate towards that kind of media I i like that people are exploiting this moment as dark and as lethal as this moment is i think that kind of stuff does act as a time capsule. It may be a little redundant and overwhelming to watch all of that right now, but I I don't know if you go back in 10 years and you're like watching all the films from one certain director. And then there's this one COVID movie they made. Mm -hmm. Like that's an interesting time capsule of like just where we are and what resources we have to even make art right now. Yeah. Now that you, you put it that way. Yeah. I mean, I'll probably enjoy all this stuff a little more, later on i think like now just like movies are an escape from this hell (laughs) and yeah whenever you like flip on a film that's like literally putting you right back where you're trying to leave your it's just oh god 
We need time to heal. <laughs> well, if you look at the um, reviews for Locked Down, they're like way more negative than that movie deserves. So I think a lot of people are on the same page with you. The other two recommendations I have are a little more abstract in their COVIDness. Uh, one is that movie Vivarium, where it's this couple who is stuck in this house in this fake neighborhood and they can't leave and they're raising an awful child that they hate. <laughs> and it's this like sci-fi prison where like the only interaction they have with the outside world are these kind of like Amazon deliveries. It is a grading film. The child that they raise that they hate is more annoying than the kid from the Babadook by like a thousand fold. A lot of people hate the movie because of that. I found it really darkly funny and especially it was like a great reflection of how people were getting frustrated, especially early on in lockdowns, like the hell of like raising a kid and being stuck in the house with them and like hating the only other people you're stuck with, even though you should love them because you're, they're your family. I don't know. I found it a very bitter shrill but but uh effectively creepy and fun movie you know in some way its themes kind of reminded me of uh we need to talk about kevin or like i'm really drawn to that idea of like you're stuck with raising something that you hate i know that's kind of a, <laughs> a very negative view of child rearing but um i i don't think enough movies touch on that because it's a pretty dark subject that's one of britney's favorite genres yeah because i i I understand it like (laughs) and here's my thing is like we have think of all the people in the world that have children like how many of them are truly enjoying it you know like there's no (laughs) way there is a percentage out there that cannot come out into the open and i think these movies help them and we need more of them for this really small community that hates their own kids. So what I'll also say about this movie is like more so than any other movie I can really think of now that you brought it up, Brain, is like the first, I would say two thirds, like that first hour of this movie, I was like, this is definitely going to be a top 10 movie for me. I might have to rewatch it, but the ending did not satisfy me in any way, like, I don't want to spoil the movie for anyone that hadn't seen it, but I don't know. It kind of ends on sort of a dud for me. And I felt like the first part was so much fun and it was so darkly funny and weird. And I thought the set design was really cool and creepy. It's like a little dollhouse suburban neighborhood where everything looks exactly the same and it just sprawls out forever. You cannot escape it. I loved a lot about this movie. I feel very conflicted overall about the film, but it was definitely one of the more memorable movies from last year. And then one more quick one, just on a positive note, because host and vivarium are a very negative view of where we are right now. One of the things about like the past year, like yes, the world outside is fucking miserable and deadly (laughs) and you know menacing like just having to leave your house to go get food is like a fucking panic attack but um one thing i do kind of like right now is just having more free time alone to like work on art projects and just having time to do constructive things that have no real purpose other than just you playing with your toys really there's this movie called shock of the future that i really enjoyed it's set in the late 70s and it's um, Hodorowski's granddaughter is the main actor in the film. She basically is a electro pop musician. Um, she's one of the first people to use analog synths to create danceable pop music. 
and the entire film is her in her apartment. Some friends drop by, but she's just playing with these different early synths and drum machines, just basically inventing an entirely new sound. And the movie is dedicated to the women who didn't get enough credit for like pioneering electronic music, like the shift from drums, bass, guitar, rock music to like, you know what we have today, which is like pretty much all electro pop. It's like what's on the radio. And um, she's kind of like a composite character, like paying homage to all those different women. But it's just really cool watching her like put a sound together by just sort of incubating alone in this apartment with all her toys, all her expensive analog toys that you want to play with, but you can't because they've only gotten more expensive, the more vintage they are. (laughs) And it's just really cool. You listen to some really great uh, synthwave music and there's like a house party at the end. So you get a good like swelling of community. Uh, so yeah, it, it is very like locked into a particular space the way that host and vivarium are where you're not allowed to leave your apartment. But in this case, it's like constructive and um, I don't know, very pleasant. And I, I think it's a really good musicians movie. If you have any desire to see like a film represent how a song comes together, there's a really great songwriting sequence in this movie with a lot of good stops and starts that feel really authentic. And by the time the song is like fully constructed, it, it's like really satisfying. What? Oh, that sounds cool, man. Shock of the Future, which I saw at a um, free online film festival. I think it was like the free version of Sundance or South by Southwest that played on Amazon Prime for a week or something. It's a movie I haven't heard a lot of people talk about, so I I highly recommend it. You know, I feel like a lot of people when the lockdown started told themselves that they were going to like, oh, this is it. I'm going to focus on my art and I'm going to write and record and I don't know. I I think I told myself that too. And as the months sort of waned on, that happened less and less. So I don't know. It would be nice to see someone actually do something with that time. It doesn't help that you feel like if you look away from Twitter for five minutes, the world will absolutely collapse and take you out with it. (laughs) It's, it's so hard to focus on anything constructive right now because Mm -hmm. the doom scrolling impulse is just too strong. And it weighs on the back of your mind constantly. I have a hard time writing right now, even though I have more time to write than ever. Um, So yeah, it is satisfying watching someone actually complete a project which is why I watch so many um, reality competition shows right now, too. I just want to watch people make stuff. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and be successful at it and finish exactly. it. Exactly. Yeah. And win a prize. Well, we are going to talk about three more honorable mentions from last year. We're going to get a little deeper into them because we all watched them together for this episode. So there's lots more to discuss, even though much fewer movies coming your way. And all that's coming up to you right, right now. now. You know, there, there are degrees of artifice, you know, with everyone. We're all putting, we're, we're yeah. performing for you right now, you yeah. know. But a lot of those experiences are, um, you know, those emotive experiences that those people are having are, are genuine amongst yeah. each other. You know, yeah. they're, they're relating to each other yeah. and the people that, that they chose to bring uh, yeah. to the bar. And we're going to start with a recommendation from James. So it is Bloody Nose, Empty Pockets. It's a documentary you could say about this bar in Las Vegas that is finally closing down for good. And the documentary is sort of a fly on the wall where the regular drunks come in and spend their last night um, kind of drinking the night away before this bar closes. And yeah, it's just a fly on the wall where you 
kind of hang out with these people and just, it really feels like you were in the bar with them just shooting the shit. And you have your like angry drunks, your really talkative, philosophical drunks. You have your PTSD war vet drunks. I mean, it really runs the gambit, but you literally just hang out with these people for an hour and a half as they talk about everything, just life, love, politics a little bit. And it sort of becomes this mosaic of dive bar culture. And I was really taken aback by this movie because I feel like there's been a lot of films that have tried to be films about drunkenness and about bar culture, but haven't really captured it in a authentic way. And this movie, I think, does capture it in an authentic way. But where some of the controversy with this film comes in is, and I didn't know this until after the fact, but this bar is not real. This bar in Vegas is actually, these filmmakers are from New Orleans and they went to Vegas with this idea of setting this story in Vegas, but it's actually shot in New Orleans with New Orleans natives. And you also have a few actors in there. So not everyone is being authentically themselves and they also had never met each other before this project. So you have all that sort of hanging in the background. But I think what I really was struck by with this movie was after finding that out, how artificial it felt after finding that out, but also how authentic it felt too. And again, just sort of um, an ode to specifically like New Orleans dive bar culture. I was really taken back by it. I've kind of talked to some other people who range from they hated the movie till they kind of thought it was okay. So I've heard like a wide range of opinions on it. So yeah, I'm curious you guys after having seen it, like what did you think of the film? It made me feel weird. Yes. (laughs) So first of all, I started watching it and immediately recognized Michael Martin, who's like just a local guy that from New Orleans who you could find at a bar, you know, pre-pandemic. And he does play in a lot of, you know, local plays and things like that. So I was like, oh my God, like I know him. And he follows us on Twitter, which is amazing. Yeah. I kind of um, had a interesting like discussion on a mutual friends, like, you know, anti-Trump post with him and we became Facebook friends. (laughs) Oh, he's a very prolific tweeter, especially about (laughs) politics. He tweets a lot. Yes. So... I was surprised though by that. And I swear to you, that woman who flashed, like I have seen her. I know I've seen her somewhere. It it brought me back to like what it was like to go to dive bars, like before the pandemic, which I loved. Like it just reminded me of like, a you know, a late night at Snake and Jake's or, you know, yeah. going to the Sane or going to Mix or something like that. Like, I think those are too nice. I, I would say it reminds me of like the Red Door or like Checkpoint Charlie's in the middle of the <laughs> afternoon. It reminds me a lot of like Metairie, like going to like oh, Fat yeah. City. Fat City. Metairie Bar. That's more the vibe. <laughs> Cheers in Metairie. Cheers. <laughs> yeah. It's got the lighting of Snake and Jake, so. With the right. Christmas just, lights. I could smell it. I just like, you know, the dirty, the cheap liquor, the filth, the, the cigarettes coming in from in and out 
And I got, I loved it. And I loved how it just felt like a night at a bar. Like I didn't really pay attention to much of what was going on. I don't think it mattered. Um, it just felt like, you know how you could put on those like fireplace things on your TV like to have log. like, yeah. yeah, the log. It felt like that. But like you could have this bar setting in the background that makes you feel like it's real and you're a part of it, which I thought was really cool, especially like in the current times that we're in where this just isn't something we see anymore. And if we do, shame on you. You should be at home. But what really freaked me out is, is there a, like, what is the reason for this? Like being a fake ish documentary, not taking place in new Orleans yeah. and in Las Vegas where it, there's no reason it shouldn't take place in new Orleans. Like, it was strange and I didn't know how to feel about that. Like, what are they trying to pull? Like, are they just being a bunch of goofy little, you know, brother duo pranksters? Yeah. Like, I don't know. (laughs) I think that's the biggest question mark for me is they're from new Orleans. They've captured the new Orleans bar feel to some extent. Why double down on setting it in Vegas which mm-hmm. seems to be making some sort of like they went into it with a thesis of this is a statement on the American dream, like, Oh, the glitz and glamor of Vegas, but really it's kind of rotten and sad on the inside, but they couldn't see that they had the perfect subject right in front of their face. That's I feel what silly me. for being mad about it, but I was like, how dare you? Like, <laughs> like, how dare you? Like, why would you like use New Orleans, but then like give all the credit to Las Vegas? <laughs> I'll defend it a little bit in that you could set this movie in any city in America that has like a tourist attraction aspect to it, mm-hmm. but it has to be like at the outskirts of those cities. Like it has to be at like the bland strip mall, like outer edges of them. And and this was filmed on the West Bank, which doesn't have as much personality as the city itself. Do you know what I mean? Like, I feel like this is where you start getting to the sort of suburbs of a tourist city so that it's, it does start to lose a little bit of its new Orleans sheen, even though I hear it in the accents and I see it in the characters. I found it to be more interesting because like, I feel like the outskirts of new Orleans stuff to be like more bizarre than what's in new Orleans. Like, could you imagine yeah. a night at Moe's Chalet? In Met- I mean, Jesus Christ, like, it's probably <laughs> insane. So I kind of like that idea. Like, that would be something kind of cool <laughs> to go with. <laughs> well, I think inadvertently, like, that is what they captured. They can set it in Las Vegas all they want. But again, I think they really did capture that old Metairie, West Bank, outskirts of New Orleans bar feel. So the Las Vegas stuff, I just kind of don't care about it. I don't think that that's Mm -hmm. what the film is an actual document of. I think documents an interesting word too. Like I know you were talking about trying to pinpoint the genre earlier and like, what is truth here? It's kind of weird because it's not, not a documentary. It's like documenting an experiment. Mm -hmm. Like it's like, what happens if we throw all these, uh, you know, we have, Michael Scott Martin, like one professional actor, but for the most part, non-professional actors who are real life drinking buddies in a fictional scenario with only a few prompts, what can we document? Like what interactions will crop up naturally from that? And how do we find authenticity in that like fake scenario? 
So maybe that setting of the movie in a different city is even part of that. Like there are these like sort of fictional artificial constrictions on what could be documented in that space. It, it, it is a little bit like a science experiment more so than it is like a fly on the wall, Frederick Wiseman documentary, you know, right. like it is playing around with what is truth in a sort of cheeky way. But, you know, there's a lot of genuine emotion. Like when people cry or like have meltdowns or have to get kicked out of the bar because they're too dangerously drunk and are going to put other people's safety in danger in a way that like would, uh, I imagine, muddle the insurance liability of the people throwing this experiment. <laughs> like when they kick that guy Ira out of the bar on the first day in the middle of the afternoon, it's like, oh, my God, that guy needs to go home and, na- and sleep this off so bad. And they call they call him off because he has to go to work, quote unquote. But that guy does not have a job to go to. That's like you need to get out of this bar because you're about to throw this experiment out of whack and like shut it down before it even really starts. Yeah, I mean, it is like an experiment. It basically is like a reality show. And those are just as fake. They are. And just as real. And just as real. Like there are genuine emotions here. And like the movie works for me in both ways. It's like Brittany said, part of it is just like this is pre-COVID. I'm hanging out in a bar and this feels like just nice to hang out with people and have this sense of community without focusing so much on like specific conversations or whatever. But I think there are some genuine moments of humanity in this movie, you know, especially towards the end. One moment that really stuck out to me was when you have the, the like musician guy with the tattoos and, the Michael character and he's like laying on the couch with him and his head is on his chest and he's like drunkenly trying to give him some real life advice. And he's like, don't be a person that says they used to do stuff. And like, he's like imploring him like, dude, like this is not your life. Like this is fun, but do something with your life. And like those kind of moments felt. And again, this Michael guy, I didn't actually recognize him or anything, but like he is an actor. I don't know if he was fed those lines, but it felt real. It felt like a genuine thing. And maybe that's all that matters, even if Mm -hmm. they were lines. I love that, that scene because that is just like that part of bar life that I love so much when you just get to that point where everyone's so drunk that they're just so honest with each other and they're just, (laughs) it takes like about an hour to get a sentence out, but it's so genuine. And (laughs) I miss that. The genuine part of it that sticks out to me is like how dangerous the movie feels at times. I think that is a turnoff for some people is like this movie is somewhat morally irresponsible to get these people like so wasted in this confined space. I mean, these are bar flies. Like these are people who would be drinking anyway. And Mm -hmm. you see them getting cabs called for them. Like they're not allowed to drive off. They're like shepherded home to safety. Safe. So that part at least feels responsible, but there are these like kind of dangerous interactions where a fight might break out or someone might pass out and like hurt themselves or hurt someone else on their way down. I found, I found that very thrilling because a lot of the movie is just like kind of a hangout film. Like there are characters that you hang out with, for extended periods of time without any sort of like plot purpose other than just like waiting for it to go off the rails, either like physically or emotionally. Like you kind of wait for them to have a meltdown um, because if you're going to consume that much alcohol for that long of a period of time, there is going to be some sort of like 
inhuman unraveling that happens. You know what vibes this gave me? Climax vibes. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Where, it, it, I mean, I know they weren't forced and, like, literally stuck in that bar, but it felt like a kind of, like, lock-in situation. And I'm like, oh, my God, like, this movie could go one of two ways. Like, somebody could start peeling someone's face off at any second, you know? The dancing was a lot less sloppy in uh, Climax. The dancing was a lot sharper, you know, <laughs> a lot better practiced. Yes. You know, I, I think that the character, though, that is probably the hardest thing to watch in this movie for me, besides the threat of violence, is there's a Vietnam vet character who obviously has like PTSD. And there's a lot of moments in this film where the camera will zoom in on him and everyone around him is talking and he's just staring off into space and he ends up like crying later in the, and that made me feel really dirty. And that felt Mm -hmm. really exploitative to like feed this guy that's in such a dark place. And the alcohol just brings out these demons. But I think the film is pretty fair in how it approaches like, the effects of alcohol and al- alcoholism. It's like you see those moments of genuine connection that probably couldn't happen sober. And you see people like caring for each other. You also see some really dark shit and you see people turn violent. Yeah. It, it just felt honest. And the same reason I like that, that Mods Mikkelsen movie that made my list another, another round. round. I like these films, you know, that came out this year that, talk about alcohol in an honest way like we we've all had good times at the bar and connected with people we couldn't connect to otherwise but yeah the shit gets dark too so yeah that vietnam vet character he was in a very bad place and it was very hard to watch sometimes the mods nicholson movie is an interesting counterpoint too because like you were talking about how that movie is kind of honest about alcohol's like positive effects sometimes yeah as like a social lubricant and there is that guy in this movie that's kind of like a jazz fest hippie. Yeah. He dresses like a minion, which no one comments on. It bothers me. <laughs> He's wearing the exact minion uniform. But he actually seems pretty functional, even though he's day drinking along with the best of them. Uh, he's like kind of a jovial guy uh-huh. and is just sort of like takes care of his one drinking buddy who has to go home early because she gets a little too sloppy. And he like mills about and is just generally fun to hang around with and doesn't Mm -hmm. seem like alcohol ruined his life in any tangible way. If anything, these like bar flies that he befriends have gotten him through some of the darker times in his life and have formed a family when his own family, you know, died before he did. So, you know, the movie is positive about this environment too. It's not all darkness and despair. I also, I did like the, guy that looked like Albert Einstein that oh, that guy's literally amazing. just mm-hmm. drank the entire movie and it doesn't seem like it affected him one bit. No. He was there till the very end. It was like, all right, well, no, time to go home. He was such a mystery. He started mumbling a little bit about uh, whatever European vacation he was going to take next year. It <laughs> started to get a little incoherent. But other than that, uh, <laughs> yeah, he just seemed like a really cool dude. I wanted to pick his brain. Yeah, so it sounds like y'all enjoyed it. Which makes me happy. Yeah. So, it was good. It's kind of hard to say enjoy it in the way that you would like a normal movie. Like it's so unstructured. It's you're not looking for plot beats or character beats in the way you are with like a normal film. It's it's very much just about like 
the results of this like extremely specific set of circumstances they created and then documented what happened inside of them. So like I could see how someone could be a little like bored or like put off by it, but it is just like genuinely fascinating to see what happened inside of this weird little bottle they created. Well, and what I would say to that is like, if you're hanging out in a bar, it's not all these like grand plot point epiphanies. A lot of it's just random shooting the shit. And then every once in a while you get that moment of human connectedness. That's what this felt like. It's like a lot of it is just meandering. We're hanging out. And then every once in a while, someone says something very profound and very smart. And you're just like, Whoa, like where did, where did that come from? I'm not going to remember that tomorrow. So yeah, no, I, I, I do see that, that point, but again, it just made me miss going to bars and I don't know when that's going to come back. But yeah, this made me a little bit nostalgic. Well, I am excited. I am really excited. I mean, I got to be honest with you here. I have been waiting for this moment for what feels like forever. Gosh, I am just so pleased that you decided to take this journey with me. We're going to get to know each other. We're going to talk about whatever you want. But more than anything, we're going to have some fun. And hopefully, it's the start of a beautiful relationship. What do you say? The movie that I picked for this episode is Rent-A-Pal. Rent-A-Pal is this film that takes place in the 90s, like early 90s, late 80s, and It is about a guy named David who lives at home with his dementia-ridden mother in this really, really dreary apartment that, I mean, the whole thing is filmed in, like, cat shit green hues. And he lives in the basement. He has, like, a little basement room. And he's just, like, super, super, super lonely, has no social life whatsoever, And is pretty much living the same life that all of us are living right now. So he is very, very relatable. (laughs) He's a very relatable pandemic character. And he is using this VHS dating system called Video Rendezvous. And it's sort of like Tinder of the early 90s, where you record a video kind of explaining like who you are, what you want in a partner. And you go to this physical location and get tapes from other people who may match to you. And he is just like obsessed with like finding a girlfriend via video rendezvous. And while he's at the the facility, he looks through like a bargain bin and he finds this VHS tape called Rent-A-Pal. And he brings it home and it's a video where Will Wheaton, who is... Dressed up like Mr. Rogers, he is one of the most terrifying things I've seen come out of 2020. (laughs) So in this Rent-A-Pal video, Will Wheaton is this guy named Andy who, like, talks to you like he's your friend and gives you, like, you know, he'll kind of have a conversation with you via VHS and give you, like, like, he'll do pauses and give you time to kind of respond to his questions And David becomes, like, obsessed with Andy. 
Like, this is his only friend. He's obsessed with his Renapal tape. And it slowly, like, takes over his life <laughs> and drives him into madness in the end. That's the gist of it, uh, without kind of giving away any good um, ending parts. I think you're missing one particular aspect of it that is very specific to social technology right now. I think you're right that it has a lot of overlap with like social media, the way that this VHS tape is sort of supplanting like a real life relationship and taking over more and more of his time. The thing that it really reflects about the way that happens in real life to me is like the fact that the tape sort of infects his brain with like MRA poison. Like there's a lot of men's rights activists like misogynistic undertones right. to a lot of stuff Will Wheaton says. It's very incel. <laughs> yeah, it's very like he gets jokerified as the movie <laughs> goes along. And uh, to the point where like the real evil that happens in the film is the way this sort of like sweet, lonely guy transforms into this abusive monster who hurts the women in his life with physical violence. Mm -hmm. And I was kind of expecting it to be kind of like a goofy horror comedy, but I ended up being like really grossed out and like creeped out by those explosive machismo outbursts of violence. I did not expect the movie to take those themes as seriously and as grotesquely as it does. Yeah, you're right. Like that part of the videotape, whenever like Andy's like, let me tell you what this chick did to me kind of thing. <laughs> That's where it kind of hits yeah. that point where you're like, holy crap. <laughs> the, the way I've, kind of felt about was like i thought this movie was extremely well made i thought the cinematography and the music and will whedon as this renapal character like was super duper creepy like everything mm -hmm. was so well done and i hated it not not like i hated the movie i like felt so icky because i think in the beginning i actually had the sense like kind of like brandon alluded to like he seemed like a very sweet guy. He was like helping his mother, like anybody that would be willing to help take care of a parent with dementia is like a giving person. He just seemed like a sad, lonely, sweet guy, you know, that was taking care of his mom. And to see him transform into his ultimate form, and especially those scenes with him and his love interest, like he actually connects with, a girl through one of these videos and they have a really sweet date and it goes super well. And you're just like, dude, you have a genuine human like connection with this girl. Like go with that. Do not get sucked in to, like you said, this incel MRA bullshit. Yeah. Those brain worms have already gotten way too deep in his psyche. Right. And I knew where it would ultimately end up. And it just like, yeah, again, I'm not saying I, I'm saying it's hard to judge a movie like this for me where it's like it's tackling such a icky subject in such a good way like it's a very good film but i don't know how to feel about it but i like hated that it ultimately ended up where i knew it had to go you know what i mean i was very compelled by this film like i thought the scenes with him and the renapal creeped me the hell out and <laughs> i was just like pleading like dude like please do not go, you know, to the dark side. And but you know, there's no helping him. So I, I don't know. I, re I really liked it though. Yeah, you're kind of set up to expect, especially early on, where they're showing like the VHS tapes of women on sort of auditioning for a date. 
Uh, there's a lot of like everything is terrible or like Tim and Eric kind of awkward comedy about that stuff. I did not expect this to be such a feel bad movie based on like the ventriloquist lady or, you know, just the sort of warped VHS nostalgia. Mm-hmm. We've been trained to find really like comforting, warm feelings in that kind of aesthetic. Even something like too many cooks, you know, that is a menacing, horrifying short film, but it's also like really funny and you feel kind of like light and jubilant at the end of it. You don't feel good at the end of Rent-A-Pal. You feel disgusting. The ending of the film, like I knew it was like, it was going to sort of go there where he was just going to lose it and snap on everybody. But it was so graphic, like especially what happens to his like poor mother. It's just so gross. And I don't know, like just watching him turn into this like, you know, insane monster of a person was just, I don't know, it's just a tragic ending, but you don't feel bad for him <laughs> at all. Well, I think his love interest, like she, had, I a, didn't. she had a really good line when they're on the date and they're talking about, you know, because she's a caregiver too. And mm-hmm. that's where they have this connection and she sort of sees some darkness in him and talking about like resentment you know and how you can come to resent the people that you care for and he refuses to acknowledge that that might be the case and i think that's probably true with a lot of you know these incel men's rights people where they're not willing to acknowledge their own like resentments towards themselves and their life situation it's always some external thing so yeah i wish there could have been some hope for him, I wish he could have like listened to that message, but yeah, ultimately the Renapal was too strong. The brainwashing was too <laughs> strong. I just thought that like the whole Andy setup was, and I think you know I was kind of reading about the film. It took them. I mean, I'm not surprised, but it's just one day of them filming the whole. Like Will Wheaton just spent one day filming all his part of this and he's just like one of the ultimate villains <laughs> to come out of a 2020 film in my eyes. Another thing I respected about this movie is like I thought it was actually going to go to a supernatural explanation like the tape comes alive or it's manipulated in some way. I mean it it kind of does that a little bit towards the end. I think it's more the David character is like losing his mind, but I like that the tape was Literally just the tape. I mean, it was all in his head. It wasn't... Yeah, he went back and got a different copy of the same tape, and that one was just as lucid and like free to, to, to alter <laughs> based on what he was saying, yeah. Yeah, it was just like giving him what he needed to hear, but it wasn't like haunted in any way. You know what else I like about that whole setup? Like, just the idea of like turning this retro nostalgia we have for like vhs stuff just because it's the stuff we grew up with like turning that into something like grotesque and uncomfortable i also like that it starts with like inside of the mechanics of a vcr like showing oh yeah the audio being pulled off of it and like it shows the yes cathode ray tvs like up close so you see like a prism of colors and it's like really beautiful and that really cool like synth score in the background yeah, yeah, lots lots of, like, 80s and 90s nostalgia up front. And then later on, his mom's, like, favorite activity to do is she loves to watch His Girl Friday on VHS over and over again. And the movie looks like absolute dog shit on that TV, <laughs> on that, like, worn-down VHS tape. And I thought that was just such a fun inclusion just to, like, pull back that nostalgia and 
sort of point out like how we used to watch these like classic cinema gems on just like the ugliest fucking format possible and like how you could turn like a movie as like great as here's, here's girl friday into like something you can't even like look at directly because it just looks like trash we used to watch so many movies on those tiny little fucked up little tvs well I, you know i was thinking about that too in regards to like dating i kept thinking about love connection i don't know if y'all remember that show from the it had like chuck woolery and these mm-hmm. people go on a date and then they would both like record these little video things for each other and comparing that aesthetic to like Tinder, where the shots like have all, an Instagram too, like all these filters, everything looks so polished. And you go back and watch like old love connection. Yeah. Like you said, like it looks like shit. Like it's all grainy. <laughs> the people don't look good under that aesthetic. Yeah. I do like that. It kind of, yeah. Just show like the nastiness of that late eighties, early nineties aesthetic. And I do think it ha- it does have a modern pull with that MRA uh, incel thing. Not that misogyny is like a new invention, but the idea that like, you know, technology can rot someone's brain if they spend too much time alone with it uh, and listen to the worst channels. I hope this podcast isn't rotting someone's brain for the worse <laughs> as we're trying to for recommend movies to people. Yeah, hopefully we <laughs> rot your brain for the better, but we're doing the same thing, really. Well, the last movie we have was my pick. It is a Finnish drama. I'd, I'd call it an erotic thriller, even though it is included on Shudder, which is like a horror platform. Uh, it's called Dogs Don't Wear Pants. It's about a brain surgeon who, after his wife dies, and he's like raising his teenage daughter by himself and sort of just going through the motions of life, very bored with his job, he develops a fetish for breath play. He accidentally stumbles into this dominatrix's play dungeon and she chokes him for the offense. Like she knocks him to the ground and chokes the life out of him. And while he's on the ground getting choked, he has this like euphoric vision of his wife drowning and he becomes addicted to that sensation. He's like, I need to be choked to the point that I nearly die so that I can visit my wife's memory. So he keeps going back to this dominatrix and getting her to choke him more and more and more even though he is a brain surgeon and knows logically more than anyone else should cutting off the oxygen to your brain is so bad for you. It, it really is like a popular kink breath play, but like also the most dangerous and one that people should not indulge in as often as they do, because there's no safe way to do it. Really? Like you're not supposed to cut off the oxygen to your brain. It's so bad. So what that does is it, it follows a template I love in movies. It's like one of my favorite story structures where like, The protagonist knows that something is dangerous, but they keep doing it anyway because it makes them really horny. Um, (laughs) I love that in movies. I love like that intense attraction to something lethal. And the two of them sort of form this like uneasy romance around him sort of daring her to kill him and her sort of like seeing the sweetness in him that she doesn't see in her other clients. And by the end of the movie, kind of opposite of Rent-A-Pal, It like starts very grim and fucked up. And I'd say by the end, it is like a beaming, smiling Uh, love connection. Yeah, it's a connection between two people. And it's like about this sort of like breakthrough they have about how to like connect with other people when they're usually very distanced. That that was exactly what I was going to bring up. You took my thought is like comparing this to Renapal. It's such the opposite journey where like (laughs) in the beginning of Renapal, I felt some hope 
of like, oh, this is a sweet guy and he's going to overcome this. And then by the end, it's really, really bad and it's really dark and messed up. And in this movie, I had that creeping sense of dread like through most of the movie. And then towards the end, I'm like, oh my God, like this guy might actually, they might find some happiness. And then I do think the final part where he, you know, goes to that club. I love that scene where he's just dancing joyfully and she sees him and kind of cracks a smile and like, oh my God, like they, he found some way to like go into his like kinks without killing himself. And he's like found his little community. It was such the opposite trajectory from Renapal. And I, I don't know. I thought that was really interesting. It's like he's like using kink wrong. Like it starts off as like a self-destructive impulse and then it becomes like therapy over the course of the movie. Yeah, I mean, he's right, especially like, at the end. Yes, like he finds how like how kink can lead him to happiness. And yeah, the happiness where he's in the club with his little leather harness and he's amongst his people. <laughs> I felt so good for him. Like, yeah, that's a movie where like you end with a smile. <laughs> but I will say there is some straight up torture porn stuff especially like the that pulling of the teeth scene towards mm-hmm. it like some of the shit really got to me i and like i cannot do fingernails oh, tearing off the fingernails oh. like there was some of it that was some of the most cringy torture porn-esque stuff i've seen in a long time also like the actual breath play the extent to which he pushes it i just like i was oh my god i was on the edge of my seat like it was really hard to watch some of that stuff. I like how the movie did that. Like I like how it forced you to like watch this shit that you normally would like, you know, in in a normal movie it would be like a, you know, like a 5 second scene or something like that, but you're like kind of drawn into like not turning away from it. So you're kind of like experiencing the kink with them. Yeah, the scenes in her dungeon, her like professional play dungeon take a lot of the screen time and they're really gorgeous too like his life outside of there is very colorless and dull and just sort of like no peaks or valleys that just sort of like the days go on and then when you get in that room there's that intense neon lighting bouncing off of her like leather dominatrix get up and the movie lingers in there and lets those sessions go on way longer than you would expect Right. I don't think there's any actual sex in this movie. Maybe when he goes on his date, there's like some bad sex very briefly, but it, it is all about that like power play they're doing in that dungeon. And the movie tells a story through those scenes, I think very well. I wish the dominatrix character would have gotten a little more depth though. Like I, I don't think I fully understood her and what her motivations were. Like I know she wasn't into normal sex. Like she said, she likes to inflict pain, but obviously she felt like sympathy for this guy, but you know, then she's also willing to like pull out his teeth and nearly kill him. So I, I was very um, interested in her character, but sort of, I don't feel like I fully understood. That's my one complaint too, is like the movie kind of repeats a couple cliches. You'll see in a lot of like dominatrix movies, you know, the hardened, cold-hearted dominatrix who will show tenderness if she just finds the right guy like that's pretty cliche and then also the bad dad like the fact that he can't <laughs> he's function a horrible as an father adult. yeah <laughs> he 
just like straight up misses his daughter's recital. Like, yeah. And he like shirks his like responsibilities at work. He falls apart because he finds this kink that he can't stop going back to. I actually love that as like a storytelling style, but like it is kind of amoral and representing a real life practice that people do for like fun and entertainment and a way to connect with other people that, you know, doesn't ruin their lives. You would never know they did it unless they told you. With the main character, like, I did have sympathy towards him, especially, like, in the beginning with his, like, you know, depression and, like, obsession with, like, his wife who drowned. But he kind of pissed me off a lot when he, like, would not leave her the fuck alone. That, to me, is, like, what must suck the most for someone in this industry is, like, oh yeah, having a client who, like will obsessively stalk you and just like not leave you alone or take no for an answer, which I had like a huge issue with, with this like guy that pissed me off. So whenever she pulled his fucking tooth out, I was like, good for you. I mean, I'm glad you got something out of this girl because he was kind of a pain in the ass. Well, but I don't know. I felt like there was something there were like, she said she knew he was stalking her and then he shows up at her house and then she's like, come inside. But then she pulls out his tooth I don't know. I don't feel like I fully grasped the relationship dynamic, which is fine. But yeah, I just uh, wish I would have got to spend more time with her character. This should be the damn four-hour movie. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> Honestly, I kind of felt like that at the end. Like, I kind of wanted to see yeah. what the next step in their relationship was after he like sort of comes into his own. Exactly. And I, and I love those moments where it kind of pried into like her life. And her background a little a little teensy bit. And I think like if this movie was a few more hours long, we could have the full story and I'm into it. And yeah, and what what's the aftermath of like, you know, the happy club dance and the smirking? Like what happens? Like, do they have, you know, a platonic friendship that is just the only thing they really do is just the breath play and have a good time? Or do they get a romance? Like what's going on? And you know, one other thing that um and I did really like this movie actually I was not expecting to like it this much and I think what really made me connect with it was I don't think we've really talked about it yet like how funny it is like oh yeah it has a really obviously dark probably because it's like Finnish and I don't know I imagine the Finns have a very dark sense of humor but like there was some really kind of laugh out loud moments in this movie that I was not expecting like it almost played a little bit like a very, very dark romantic comedy. With surgical gore. With surgical gore. <laughs> I know that sounds so weird, but that's what really like made it stand out to me was it was having fun with this very fucked up dark topic. And um yeah, I don't know. I thought it was funny. I don't know if y'all thought it was funny, but Oh, definitely. Mm-hmm. Like especially when he's um talking to his daughter. Uh, after she choked him so hard that he needed a neck brace and uh, <laughs> he meets his daughter after like letting her down so many times and just like his life and his job are falling apart. And he says, I met a woman. She goes, Oh yeah, it looks very promising. <laughs> <laughs> I'm very happy for you. It looks like things are working out. Well, there's a lot, a lot of good laugh lines like that. Yeah. It also reminded me a lot of the Bob Flanagan documentary. Oh yeah. Sick. Where, yeah. Sick which I really love where that's kind of what you were talking about earlier. You know, the sort of the trope of the hard 
heart as cold as ice, sort of dominatrix who kind of warms over and falls for her, you know, submissive partner. I you know that's essentially what happens in in sick, but I like that this went in kind of a different direction while still sort of touching on the same stuff. I think sick gets kink dynamics in a very genuine heartfelt way that a lot of movies don't touch. And I think this one gets into genuine kink stuff in a very roundabout way. Like he doesn't like being spanked and being told how to dress and like being ordered around like a dog in this movie. He wants to be choked so that he almost dies. So he can see these like euphoric visions of his dead wife. That's why he's there. (laughs) But through those interactions, he starts to find things about kink that like actually do do it for him. I think especially like when she's like wearing his wife's clothes and like wearing her cologne, he's like literally fetishizing objects from his past, which is pretty sweet uh, with, too. with his dead wife. Yeah. It's sad and it's sweet and it's like genuinely kinky. So I like that the movie comes to like real life kink dynamics in a really roundabout way, which is why that ending feels so good. Like once he figures out like, Oh, I can use this as like a therapeutic thing and not just like an assisted suicide my life is so much better now. Like, I really like that, like turnaround, but yeah, if, if the central, the central romance was played up a little more and it was a little more even and maybe a little less cliche, this definitely would have been higher on my list. I, I do have it in my top 20 because it is so very much my kind of movie. Um, I just wish it was a little bit better too, but, uh, I still love it. I think it's really good. I thought it was even better on rewatch. Actually. I loved it. And I loved, loved, loved her look, like her dominatrix look with the like pale, you know, face and the smudged eyes and this like sharp, really, really short black hair bob and the, you know, turtleneck leather. Like that whole look is just like, I'm obsessed with it, obsessed with it. Yeah. And I would like to have seen, you know, because she was like a, um, a nurse or a physical therapist or yeah like Mm -hmm. you know there's really interesting scenes where she was lifting that guy up with the ropes which felt like kinky in its own way like oh there was an interesting dynamic there too where he's this like brain heart surgeon and she's like a physical therapist so like their skills are to like help people and make them feel better but yet they're also drawn in to like pain as a form of release, like there, there was interesting stuff like that too. Like I kind of wanted fleshed out a little more, but um, overall I, I really enjoyed this one. And I, I do want to sort of say, I think all three of the movies we picked, even though they're all in different genres and all leave you with different feelings are uncomfortable in their own specific ways. <laughs> I think they all are about like people searching for intimate, genuine human connections in like weird places. Maybe Rent-A-Pal is the one where that does not work out for the guy because <laughs> no. he's searching for that connection over like the 90s version of social media. But um, they, they are like seeking someone to be with and someone to heal with uh, in all three movies. Wow. I, I find that kind of interesting. Well, I feel no, like you're right. Rent-A-Pal is like maybe starting from a good place, but it's sad and lonely and you go into the negative and then bloody nose empty pockets is sort of like alcohol is kind of neutral in a way it's just whatever you're feeling it's gonna bring that out and then dogs don't wear pants is sort of 
starting from a really negative place and somehow finding the good in that. Like there, yeah, I, I kind of see your point. That's that's an interesting. I don't think we did that intentionally. It just sort of happened. No, we are all very lonely though. <laughs> <laughs> Damn, we're a bunch of lonely bastards. <laughs> These are lonely times. It's the nature of the times, yeah. <laughs> well, next week on the show, uh, Boomer and I are going to be talking about another Star Trek movie. He keeps making me watch these, um, even oh though I have God. very little to say about the series. Uh, hopefully, I'll come up with something. Well, you know, Will Wheaton was in like a Star Trek movie, wasn't he? I think he was on the TV show. Okay, maybe so, yeah. Some kind of Star Trek generation. connection. Yeah. I'm sure you'll hear all about that next week. Um, and, uh, <laughs> and then uh, all of us will come back in two weeks. I think we're going to do some kind of like Valentine's Day theme. So we're going to get away from these like feel bad, fucked up <laughs> provocations uh, <laughs> and do some like lighthearted stuff. Yay. Leave the horrors of 2020 behind. We'll talk to you all then. Yes, I'm, I'm excited. Bye. 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 <laughs>